Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And if you enjoy the show, do leave us a review on your podcast app. Coming up on the show today, John A. Farrell, author of the new book, Ted Kennedy, A Life. Jack, welcome to Bookstack. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on the book. And how well known is Ted Kennedy now, I wonder? Are we at that stage where I need to start by asking who was Ted Kennedy? That's a very good question because it's been 13 years since he passed away. And he was certainly, the Kennedys were certainly figures for the war generation and the baby boom generation. But for my children's generation, who are now in their 30s, even for them, the Kennedy name means something. But Ted Kennedy, you know, he's the fellow who's impooned as Mayor Quimby in The Simpsons. Not a lot of, of immediate connection to who Ted Kennedy was. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you kind of, you talk immediately about him being part of the Kennedy family. And it's one of the things that comes across very clearly in the book that politics is the Kennedy family business, but somehow he's always a reluctant member at one stage when his brother has just been elected president in 1960. He even wants to go off to Arizona to set up on his own before his father says, no, that's not going to happen. So there is, there's always this feeling right from the beginning that perhaps he's only half in. Yes, he, I think that is part of his psychology. He was the ninth of nine kids born to a very wealthy family, and both the mother and the father, for different reasons, spent a lot of time away from the household, especially when the younger kids came along. And so he was shuttled from boarding school at the age of seven to boarding school and never felt that he had the same smarts and appeal that his older brothers, John and Robert, did. And so always felt sort of like the, um, the, not the, the jester in the family. And the interesting part about his story is that through an incredibly bizarre, awful set of tragedies, the jester gets to wear the, the crown at the tender age of 36 and carry on the legacy for another 40 years. And so that's uh, the, the story. Every time he gets close to the ultimate goal, which would be the presidency, to being fulfilling his father's and wishes and his and meeting the set by his elder brother John Kennedy, JFK, he seems to fumble almost in a matter of self-sabotage. Yeah, you actually say you say at one point that the longer the odds on him being president, once he's lost, the better he performs. This idea, as you say, almost of self-sabotage. Yeah, it's it, quite fascinating and of course it's not too surprising that it comes from a person who always felt insufficient when comparing himself to his brothers. And the fact that death is always there pretty much immediately from the assassination of his brother. Then there's another at the assassination of his second brother, Bobby. The fact that his eldest brother, Joe Jr., has, has died during the war. And you do show how there are assassination attempts on Ted Kennedy himself. Well, Secret Service member is wounded with a when someone tries to attack him with a hunting knife, and as well the psychological elements that you describe how Chief Justice Warren takes him through a four-hour briefing about the assassination of his brother. Son describes this it likens this to PTSD. So, so it's always there for him. Yeah, think of it this way: here is a man who was at the in 1964 
at the age of 32, was in a plane crash in which the pilot and a very close friend were killed. And his Ted's back was broken. He was strapped into a, a bed for six months, couldn't walk, had to learn to walk all over again. For any of us, this would be the defining, the defining event of our lives. And for him, it's almost parenthetical. He has three children, and all three of them have some form of cancer before early middle age. He has a wife who suffers from alcoholism, and so do all three kids at one time or another have problems with substance abuse, as does he. I mean, all these things that in a normal family would have been defining are almost, uh, as I said, parenthetical compared to these gigantic tragedies of the two assassinations and the loss of his eldest brother, Joe Jr., and his sister, Kick, in plane crashes. So it's, it is truly an astonishing story that he has the resilience to get through this. And of course, it's an imperfect response that he comes up with because in the year after Robert is killed in 1968, Ted Kennedy clearly shows signs that he's heading towards a crash, a crack up. And then, of course, it happens in 1969. The ultimate tragedy to him, he drives off a bridge and kills a young woman in his car on Chappaquiddick Island in Massachusetts. So it is stunning to think that he summons the resilience and the ability to soldier on as he does. And then it's stunning in today's day and age to see that he does so by becoming one of the great dealmakers and compromisers in the Senate, reaching out time and time again to Republicans to pass legislation. So it's a story that's hard to write because there's never a chapter where you can sort of let go and rest easy. There's always something happening in his life. Yeah, and you mentioned Chappaquiddick there that really destroys his reputation and the, the, there's, there are always questions of character around him after that. One of the things that I did find surprising, though, is that in the year before that, immediately after the assassination of Bobby, there, there are a couple of moments where he almost seems to have the nomination for the Democratic Party in the palm of his hand, that you know, when the mayor of Chicago is urging him to run. So there, is a, there, there are these moments, and perhaps that more than any other, where you feel perhaps he was just within striking distance of the Oval Office. Yes, and I think very wisely he decided not to enter the race in 68 because I think he was correct in saying that everybody would have accused him of just exploiting Robert's assassination and running completely unprepared for such an august position as the president of the United States in the middle of the Cold War. So he probably was smart in, in doing that. Of course, he never could have known that a year later he was going to have this car crash in Chappaquiddick, completely bunked his response to the car crash with a very craven reaction trying to cover it up in a moment of panic and then have to live with that for the rest of his life. But there were other years in 72 and 76 where he may well have been a, a good candidate, a likely candidate for the presidency. Again, sort of getting to the question of psychology as to why he chooses to run in 1980 and attack uh, an incumbent president from his own party instead of waiting and, and maybe running against you know Ronald Reagan, as it turned out in, in, in 1984. I mean, for all those all those missed opportunities, I mean, that, that's one of the reasons in the book when you say that coming back again to 68, when Humphrey, who is the nominee, offers him the vice presidentship or to, to, the, to be on the ticket to run as vice president, that, you know, perhaps given what happens afterwards, this is the actual missed opportunity. 
Yeah, but understandably so. He was just totally destroyed that summer by the second assassination on top of everything else. Now, all of a sudden, he had to carry on the legacy. He was the oldest surviving male in the family. And and so the burden on him was huge. And he rightly said, I'm not ready for this. He probably could have done a decent job. I mean, the Kennedy name would have attracted great talent to staff his White House. But I mean, look what happened to extraordinarily capable politicians, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, trying to deal with 68 and 69 and 70 with Vietnam and eventually Nixon with Watergate. Yeah. So we, we talked earlier about Chappaquiddick in, in many ways. It's the defining moment of his life. And I suppose in some ways, the defining moment of the book, too. I mean, you're very even handed in the way that you present it. You First of all, you lay out what you describe as the kind of the charitable interpretation, and then you provide the one which is far more damning. I mean, what do you think actually happened there? And why was his judgment so poor in that moment? Well, he panicked, is the easy way to, to say it, and immediately tried to come up with some sort of half-bitten cover-up plan in which he would rush back to his hotel room, ostentatiously show up in the hotel lobby asking what time it is at 2.30 in the morning to establish some sort of alibi. And the great benefit of putting things off as he did, whether or not the cover-up worked or not, was that by the time he did go to the police, if they had been sharp enough to ask him for a blood test, the alcohol would have vanished from his system. So we will never know how much he had to drink that day or whether or not that was a factor in the accident. It was, it he himself said it was inexcusable. I don't I haven't found anybody who um, comes to his defense for his actions that night. In the book, I call them craven. Chappaquiddick, I think, is the, the, if you go to the index, it's, it has more references than almost any, anything else other than the Kennedy family in his life. So the thing that can be said for him is that he was in a car accident and he barely escaped a drowning. He hit his head in the accident. And to to whatever extent those factors way on the other side from just saying this was a, a total character flaw. You sort of, as you said, you have to, you do have to weigh them. I'm a, I'm not a, I'm a very, I'm actually, a, it's a hard time to be a biographer because we're living in this very polarized political era, whether you're either a saint or you're a devil. And to, you know, great biography looks not to black and white. It looks for the gray. It looks for uh, who the person was and tries to be empathetic for whoever you're writing about. This is, I think, why my uh, biography of Richard Nixon was successful. But it's interesting that in only five or six years since I wrote the Nixon book, the political climate has gotten tougher, much more partisan and much more polarized. And it, the verdict on the book seems to be not, did, did Jack write a good book? It's whether or not you're right or left and what you think of Ted Kennedy as a champion of liberalism. Yeah, it's. I mean, you mentioned the uh, the biography, the excellent biography of Nixon that you wrote. I mean, that becomes part of the rehabilitation for Ted Kennedy. You talk about how he f comes to focus on healthcare, and we see your two books coming together because he works very closely with Nixon on healthcare. And the sense of frustration that he feels actually afterwards because he realizes that he blows it, that the deal was on the table. He walked away because he couldn't get everything that he needed and subsequently sees it as the biggest mistake of his career. Yeah, the biggest legislative mistake. That's true. And he told me this personally in the years before he died, that without a doubt, that was his biggest tactical mistake, not taking that deal with Nixon. 
Nixon had proposed, Nixon was desperate to want to change the, the subject during Watergate. And so he had proposed something that very close to what we have today in the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, Nixon had come up with in 1974. And so there was a chance that all the planets and the stars were in alignment and that we could have had this national health care program that long ago. And Kennedy was willing to go along, but he could not get his allies to join him and, you know, was intensely frustrated and being there in the middle, seeing that a deal was at hand, not being able to get the unions, for example, or the far left liberals, all of whom were saying, you know, don't cooperate with this guy, Nixon. He's a dead guy. We'll have a huge majority once we drum him out of office. And Kennedy went along, and it, it, it took him another 40 years before he could come around, tell another president, Barack Obama, this is the time, Mr. President, you know, now is the time it has to be done. Yeah, it's, I mean, by 10 years after Chappaquiddick in 1979, through the efforts that he's rebuilt his career in the Senate, he runs again for president, as you as you said earlier. But again, we have another example that you describe it as him doing it in the worst possible <laughs> way, that he makes a, a complete mess of it in ways that, again, almost look like self-sabotage. Yeah, especially the, uh, the famous Roger Mudd interview. Roger Mudd was a CBS newsman and scheduled an interview with Kennedy in September, August and September of 1979, as Kennedy had made the decision internally to challenge Jimmy Carter, but had not announced it yet. And so this is, Ted Kennedy has always been somebody who stressed preparation. And instead, he invites Roger Mudd up to Cape Cod. And in a second interview, days later, is similarly caught unprepared by the simplest of questions, which is, why do you want to be president? And, you know, it wasn't me looking back alone saying, oh, my goodness, this looks like he's trying to kill his own best chances here. It was columnists like Anthony Lewis and Ellen Goodman at the time and, and friends like John Tunney and Warren Rudman in the U.S. Senate, all of whom watched that and said, oh, my God, he doesn't want it. He's scared of it. He's trying to make sure that the, this cup passes. Yeah. And I mean, you actually include kind of long quotations from the answers with all the halts and stops and hesitations. There's another question where he's asked about the state of his marriage, which, again, he seems completely unprepared for. I mean, it is interesting because it does raise the question about whether he's actually any good or not. One of his colleagues says that, you know, he's an effective legislator. He has great staff work, but he can't complete sentences. <laughs> There's no continuous thinking. I mean, is it the kind of part of the glory in some ways of the American primary system that it, it finds people out in exactly the way that Ted Kennedy was found out in 7980? Yeah, we don't want to stress this idea too much because uh, something else happens before he has a chance to announce the president, and that's the militants in Iran take over the U.S. embassy. And that immediately creates a phenomenon in the United States of a rally around the flag, support the president, and all of a sudden, this very weak president, Jimmy Carter, who already had the governor of California, Jerry Brown, running against him. Now it's got Ted Kennedy running against him, but is transformed by this, this great surge of patriotism into a, a very strong candidate and, and very cleverly manipulates the public mood announces that he can't go out and debate, he can't go out and campaign, he has to 
stay in Washington, stay in the Oval Office, and, and manage this crisis. And for a long while, Americans go along with it. And it's only until the late spring that uh, people begin to scratch their heads and saying, you know, hey, he's playing us for fools. And then he announces that all of a sudden the, the crisis is manageable, even though he hasn't freed the hostages. And because he has, he feels the need, he has to go out and campaign. And so there's a, I mean, Jimmy Carter's great asset was that people believed he was a good man. And now all of a sudden he's revealed as a very a cynical politician. Yeah. I mean, the portrait that you paint of Carter is very revealing. I mean, he really comes across as a ruthless politician. He knew that he would lose a battle against Kennedy if it was a referendum on performance. And so he ran on character instead and absolutely destroys him. Yes, definitely. I mean, they obviously... Carter loses in the general election. There's a sense that perhaps the invincibility of the Kennedys as a family is kind of on the way out. But you mentioned before the change in kind of political times. The, the relationship with Reagan is an interesting one that, I mean, you show how they're always very gracious to each other, even though they often disagreed fiercely that Reagan has Ted Kennedy's mother, Rose, back to the White House for the first time. Since JFK had lived in the White House, the president does fundraising dinners for the JFK Library and so on. It really does emphasize that those were different times politically. Yeah. And, and George W. Bush, when he became president, looked back and saw that pattern and did much the same thing, having a great ceremony and renaming the Justice Department headquarters as the Robert F. Kennedy Building, all of which really went miles towards getting Ted Kennedy in the mood to cooperate with him on things like education in Bush's case and things like the Voting Rights Act and nuclear arms control in Reagan's case. So you find at one point in the Reagan presidency this amazing backstory of, of, of Ted Kennedy acting as a backstage go-between the fiercely conservative Ronald Reagan and White House and the new Soviet leaders that, that coming into office in, after the death of Brezhnev in the Soviet Union and, and working together quite effectively as the Soviet Union goes through that transition to Gorbachev. And then even in the first few months of Gorbachev, Kennedy is still acting as, a, as an envoy to the Soviet leaders. It's a quite remarkable story. You know, it's almost a cliche that Kennedy could then go to the floor and denounce Reagan or Reagan's uh, Supreme Court nominees like Robert Bork in the most strident ways, but that's uh, that's politics. The thing that Kennedy knew was that the next day you might need, if there was a goal in hand, you might need Ronald Reagan's signature on a 25-year extension of the Voting Rights Act, and he got it. So because he was never too much of an ideologue not to take half of the loaf, and Reagan was always a good enough politician and felt the same way. Yeah. And in some ways, it, it reinforces the point that you made earlier and that you make in the book, that this is almost the high watermark for Ted Kennedy. Once once it's clear that he's never going to be president, that after the disaster of the 79-80 campaign, he almost comes into his own. You gave the examples there, but there are there are other things, the, the way in which he leads the charge on dealing with the AIDS crisis, the way he does something similar in confronting the administration on South Africa, sanctions, the sanctions of the apartheid regime in South Africa and so on, that there really is a sense that with that out of the way, he is kind of happy in his own skin operating as Senator Ted Kennedy. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he goes down to Florida in 1991 
um, and wakes up his nephew and his son at midnight and says, let's go mm -hmm. to a, a pickup bar and have a few drinks. And the two boys bring women back to the compound, and one of them is accused of rape. And then all of a sudden, uh, all the good work that Kennedy had done repairing his reputation is put in jeopardy again. And it happens at the worst possible time because this is a time where Clarence Thomas has been nominated for the Supreme Court, and he's being charged with sexual harassment by Anita Hill. And so you've got uh, Ted Kennedy on the Judiciary Committee, unable to play the role that he had played in the Bork nomination. And he may as well have put a paper bag over his head for all the good that he did during the Thomas Hill hearings. And the authors of the two standard works on Clarence Thomas's nomination have told me that if the Ted Kennedy of Robert Bork's nomination five years earlier had been around that summer, that Clarence Thomas would not be on the Supreme Court. And it's a clear example how that a consistent pattern of personal misbehavior sort of splashes over into the public behavior, not just having consequences in the public arena and not just privately. Yeah. And I mean, you you quote a historian, Barbara Tuchman, at one stage saying it's the enduring question of character, which in some ways a leitmotif for the whole book. There's an example of it there. And you do see at this period, you describe how, I mean, he'd always played hard. He drank harder. But by the 1990s, he's bloated, red-faced, bloodshot eye, broken blood vessels on his face. That There's a real sense of self-loathing here, I think. Yeah, and, and he was quite fortunate and quite smart to recognize that in the love of his second wife, Vicky, there was some sort of measure of salvation and um, stability. And it was probably the reason that he survived a very tight re-election race in 1994, when the issue of his private behavior and his ability to function in public became a very real issue in Massachusetts. And he was running against a very capable candidate, Mitt Romney, who would later go on to be governor, U.S. senator, and presidential candidate himself. And for a time that summer, it looked like Kennedy could lose. And to, to a great extent, it was the, the sort of the happiness and the stability and the self-confidence that his second marriage brought him that made him a better senator for those last 10 years of his life. Yeah, there's always, though, that sense of dislocation. I mean, you give a, a very, very interesting example on the day of 9-11 when the First Lady, Laura Bush, by remarkable coincidences, is in Congress visiting Ted Kennedy. And he's almost uninterested in what's going on, showing her photographs of his brothers. He doesn't really pay any attention to the Twin Towers collapsing. And she reflects that maybe it's because he's been so damaged by the assassinations, the death in his life, that he almost has to block that kind of thing out. What do you think is going on there? And what does it reveal about him, do you think? I think she was right. I mean, he said afterwards that he was doing this because he wanted to sort of help her through the moment. And also because he wanted to show publicly that the American government was going to be operating smoothly, that the terrorists weren't going to achieve their goal of totally disrupting our politics. But I think that there's a hint of wisdom there in what, what she wrote and that he, you know, he had, uh, he had a very hard time. The Kennedy family as a whole had a very hard time grieving and mourning and facing up to tough interpersonal moments. And it, it's quite likely that, you know, this incredible display of violence and death on the television brought back, you know, a cascade of memories that, and that the only way that he knew how to deal with it was to, to just, to go into, you know, a jovial senator mode rather than, as most people 
did that day deal with it uh, emotionally. So finally, Jack, we come to the question of legacy and how much he matters. I was intrigued at the end of the book that you talk about the Affordable Care Act and under the Obama administration in, in many ways a capstone to his career. But we see him working very closely with perhaps one of his, actually his closest colleagues, Senator Chris Dodd. I, I was fascinated by that because Dodd also ran for president. He too was a really effective senator. But of course, nobody is writing his biography, at least certainly not for Penguin, that's for sure. Um, so, so I, you know, I guess my question is this. If Ted wasn't a Kennedy, would we be interested, do you think? No, not as interested. I mean, the fact that he was a Kennedy makes his life Shakespearean. The fact that all these amazing tragedies happened to this family that had risen in two generations from the wharfs of Boston immigrant hovels, great wealth and power, and then finally the White House. It was just an amazing story. And then you have this cascading of, of Greek, maybe it's Greek tragedy rather than Shakespearean tragedy, bringing them down. And that's, I think, is part of the reason why, I mean, even you know, young John F. Kennedy Jr. at the close of the century dies in, in yet another plane crash. And Edward Kennedy has to go out there and identify the bodies. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it is unbelievable just as a tragic drama, but it's also uh, an instructive story in that he does make an effort towards uh, atonement. I, I don't believe, I believe in atonement, I don't believe in redemption. And I think that he does make this a attempt, whether it's just to fill his every moment by working furiously so that he doesn't have to come to grip with his personal demons or whether it's out of a of a sense of generosity and duty or some sort of combination the fact remains that he does put together this amazing record he works with nixon on the war on cancer he works with reagan as i said on voting rights and nuclear arms he works with john mccain and alan simpson on immigration in 1976 he reaches out to hugh scott the republican leader and they pass a campaign finance bill that but on the front page of the New York Times the next day says, we'll end the influence of special interest money on American politics forever. And that's maybe the last lesson we should talk about, which is how uh, you have to keep fighting because things like the Voting Rights Act and campaign finance and immigration reform uh, tend to slip away under the steady assault of the interests uh, that have been gored, who don't forget and who keep fighting. And I think that might have been that might have been something that that Kennedy would have said today, which is that you know, uh, of all his great legacy and achievements, there there has been erosion. And I'm sure that you know we think that the Affordable Care Act is a done deal now. It's part of American culture now for a decade. But uh, you know, the special interests will, if the stars align for them, they will go at it again because America is first and foremost a place for business and money, and it buys influence in Washington to a degree now un unseen of um, since Watergate. And uh, so, soldiering on, always being on your guard, I think would have been one of the lessons that he would be uh, giving us today at, at the ripe old age of ninety something. So the book is Ted Kennedy, Alive. It's written by my guest, John A. Farrell, and published by Penguin Press. But for now, Jack, congratulations again. It's a brilliant book. Thanks for joining us on Bookstack. My honour and pleasure. Thank you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman and Mia Marusic. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening. 